I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. G'day and welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest, the live podcast practice where we explore the ideas that divide us in order to find the humanity that I believe connects us. Maybe you believe that too. My name's Conrad and I kid you not. I'm not kidding when I say this. If you listen to this podcast enough, it will transform you. Whoa, Conrad, an Australian making a big call. I've triggered half the Aussies already, mate. Talk yourself up, why don't you? Uh, It sounds like I'm making a massive oversell, but I realized this the other day. I've spoken to so many people I disagree with, over 80 episodes I've done, um, or people I don't really understand. and, And I realized I actually enjoy it. It didn't start that way. Uh, believe me, the first conversations, the episodes I had, that, start, that a lot of them were a chore to get through, you know, with clenched fist and a bitten tongue. Uh, but then I noticed after a while, it didn't bother me as much. My, my fists weren't clenched. I, I was okay with people who thought differently to me. And then yesterday I was listening to a podcast of someone I definitely didn't agree with at all. And I was actually enjoying it. I was like, man, this is a great episode. And I just, I agreed with none of it. And so I, I just thought, wow, I've actually... Through a lot of listening to people, I've actually changed. If that journey I've described sounds like something you would like to do, then you're in the right place. Let's get to it. Start with the clickbait, the most outrageous things we can think of. And some things, when we start with clickbait, we get to the nuance later. So the clickbait for this episode is Islam and sex. Now, it's easy to make clickbait if you just put sex in the title. That's kind of what I've done. Let's introduce a new friend of the show, Samira. Thanks for joining Ideas Digest, the podcast. You're so welcome. Now, Samira, I'm hearing a bit of an accent. I do know the answer to this, so it's not, it's not a, um, normally I like to get, guess this, but you're Canadian, yes? I am. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I have some stereotypes and assumptions that are formulating here, but I won't get to them just yet. Let's say we met somewhere in beautiful land of Canada where I would like to return. Uh, I always go to Timmy Hortons because that's your classic Canadian, or maybe we're at a hockey match. Let's yeah. stereotype it. And we run into each other. What's the surface level introduction? Who are you? What do you do? The, the general questions people ask when they just meet you. Who are you, Samira? And what do you do? Yeah, so I would say that I'm somebody who is an educator, somebody who loves to investigate and bring nuance and discussions forward. And I would say that I'm somebody who is very introspective and an introvert. And that doesn't come across because I'm so introverted in my work, but I'm actually a really strong introvert. Uh, Okay. And your work... You're an educator. What What is that? What do you do? You're a teacher, university. What is it? Yeah. So I was trained as an occupational therapist and specialized in working with kids and youth with special needs. Then I transitioned into two hot topics, uh, mental and sexual health, 
within my faith community, the Muslim community in Canada. So I would say that I'm now a sexual health educator and I've worked along the spectrum of intervention and now I'm on the side of prevention. So really wanting to empower people with holistic information. Mm. Samira, I've got a great summary, a bit about your personality, a bit about you and your work. And I've got to be honest with you now. I've just judged you. I've made all these assumptions. I've heard you Muslim. I've heard you Canadian. I've got a lot of assumptions that I need to get off my chest. Can I share them with you? And then you can correct them whether they are correct or not. I mean, sure. I've faced a lot of assumptions growing up. So I'm very comfortable in my skin. So go for it. Okay. I would like to get to those ones that you face. I'm going to try and guess at them um, or and, and see how close I get. Okay. I'll start with, I'll start with an easy one. Now, if you can confirm or deny, so yes or no, simple little box that I'm going to try and squeeze you into. That's what we want to do as people. We just want to categorize uh, the yeah. box obviously won't fit, but we'll see how close we can get. Okay. Easy one to start off with. You're Canadian. I yeah. do enjoy the company of Canadians. You've got to be one of these athletic, outdoorsy Canadians, snowboarding in the winter, mountain biking and hiking in the summer. That's got to be you. So yes, yes, I won't elaborate. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. I, that's a common thread I find in Canadians. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now some harder ones. Muslim woman. Yes. You've got to be oppressed. Uh, no. Okay. Then, and people listening to the show might see the thread coming from some of the other uh, Muslim people I've spoken to or ex-Muslim people I've spoken to. You've got to be a radical lefty. Some people are connecting these dots. You've got to be this radical lefty. The radical left. That's you. You're part of it. No. Okay. All right. Um, (laughs) Okay. Then the other side of that, well, it's a common thread. That I, that I hear pop up all the time in the mainstream news. Uh, you've got to be then Muslim. You've got to be a threat to democracy or Western values in some way. Oh, heck no. Okay. All right. Then, and I don't know if you get this one or not. This is me stabbing in the dark a little bit. You, you can't be like a true Muslim. I don't, I'm not seeing you wearing like a hijab or a burqa or anything like that. You, you can't be a true Muslim. That's false. Okay. Have you gotten that one before? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, good. I'm stabbing you in the dark. Like, I hope I'm nailing these. Okay. Yeah, nothing surprises me anymore. You know, I'm almost 40. Okay. I've been in, you know, I've been in a very public facing field. So those were really good as- assumptions. I congratulate you on those. <laughs> okay. Okay. I've got, I've got one more. I've got one okay. more. Um, you are trying to, and this is, this is me transposing what I know about the Christian world onto the Muslim world might be a wrong transposition, but let's have a look. Transposition. Is that a word? I don't know. I just made it up then. Okay. You're talking about sex. Sounds like a secular thing. You are trying to corrupt Islam with this secular sex talk. Totally false. Cause I talk about it from Islamic frameworks. Okay. All right. So I, you, you mentioned I've, gotten some of the assumptions, right? It's, this is good. I'm, I'm glad I'm getting close. What have I missed? You, you've said you've faced a lot of it. You're public facing. Yeah. What am I, what, which ones have I missed that you get quite often or have gotten before? Yeah. I think the biggest one that you've missed is people call me a modern, moderate, or progressive Muslim because of how I look and because of my work. 
Yeah, like I'm progressive. Oh, Samira, you're a moderate Muslim. You're at the center, you know, you fit well. You're like that model minority Muslim, you know, you're white passing. Because I could be white passing. I could pass as, you know, I'm a, I'm a South Asian, so I could pass for being a non-Muslim. But, you know, I don't have a, an Eastern accent. So I get though, and, you know, people don't see me as Muslim right away right? If they didn't know my name. So moderate, modern, progressive Muslim is one that I get that I say, actually, no, I'm a very strong traditional Muslim. And that surprises people. Yes, I, ima I imagine it would. Now, does that transpose when they say you're a moderate, like progressive, does that transpose politically into this? Are they talking about politics as well in that label? Yeah, they are. I mean, I live in the United States currently. And so in the climate of what we have with regards to Muslims and politics and Islamophobia in that context, I present as somebody who is, quote, a moderate, acceptable Muslim. And so there's that there's, there's that stereotype, too, which makes people feel safe, right? Because they see me and they think, OK, she seems like she's assimilated in quotations. It seems like she's Western, you know, so she's living you know, American or Western values. So yeah, that modern progressive one is one that's quite strong that Muslims face quite a bit. I've got a friend of the show, Hoppy Bounce, in the chat here, throwing, confessing some of their assumptions. Thank you for shooting it through. They've got one just here that says, um, if, you're a, if you're a traditional Muslim, you don't like Christians. False. Uh, false. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything you've added some... Uh, some extra ones in there. Is there anything, any nuance you want to add to some of the assumptions that you get with the ones I've thrown at you? Yeah. Um, assumptions that if um, a Muslim woman, woman chooses to wear hijab, that she's oppressed, that if a Muslim okay. woman chooses to wear hijab, that she's more religious than somebody who doesn't wear hijab, that she has a higher spiritual state, for example, that she has more religious knowledge if she wears a headscarf. So there's like these there's like these dichotomies that exist and these spectrums and a lot of people are just not comfortable thinking outside of these boxes as you said right this show is all about busting outside of these boxes so these stereotypes have come from somewhere and Muslims have them towards other Muslims and then non-Muslims have them towards Muslims and Muslims have them towards non-Muslims too so we're in a very complicated you know, triangular relationship here with one another. <laughs> mm -hmm. That gets supercharged by politics thrown in between when it, especially yes. in America where it's yes. Republican Democrat. And that's what, that's why I threw that one in there at the top because every, when I'm looking for different Muslim perspectives to come on the show, that's something that continually pops up is this political, whether it, uh, this political connection with like the radical left or conservative or obvious, obviously terrorism and those general stereotypes coming up. Yeah. So I wonder, given the things you've described then, could you paint a picture for me and, and some of the listeners of the show when you say that you wouldn't necessarily identify as one of these moderate Muslims and you, you pro sounding like you're describing, no, you're quite traditional in yeah. your religion. What does that look like? So if I, if, you know, friends of the show might be coming from a Christian perspective or ex-Christian perspective or atheist perspective, they might go, Okay, we know what it looks like. 
to be yeah. a conservative Christian. You know, you go to church every Sunday, you are probably voting Republican, you have, tr quote, tr traditional family values and all these political kind of associations. Like, what would it look like? So I suppose as you paint this picture of like, what does being Muslim look like in your daily life? Because people might go, okay, well, if you're, because we don't see you wearing a, a hijab or a burqa mm -hmm. or something like that, people might associate, no, no, well, that's what it looks like to be conservative. Yeah. Unpack some of these stereotypes that you're talking about. Does it, does it still have the going to a mosque every week? Does it, like, what, what would yeah. it look like for people who might have no idea? Yeah, so I think what's really important, first of all, to think about the language that we're already using, conservative, progressive, mm -hmm. moderate, traditional. So mm -hmm. those latter terms are don't come from the Islamic faith tradition. So mm -hmm. I just said the word tradition, which means Islam is a 1500 year old religion that believes in every single prophet that came before it. We believe in the same God as Christians and Jews do. Um, we don't have a monopoly on God. Um, we are an Abrahamic faith tradition. And I use the word tradition to mean both the esoteric inner dimension of Islam, which has been erased and colonized, and the external facets of Islam that everybody hyper-focuses on. So Islam is not just about rituals and routines and practices. So yes, 100%, those five pillars of Islam, I pray, I give to charity, fast, I hope to go to Hajj, and I believe that, you know, there's one God and Prophet Muhammad's his messenger, and there's many other prophets as well that came before him. Now, the inner dimension is what people don't understand about Islam, is that Islam is a religion of spirituality and God consciousness, and it's a religion of submitting and struggling. So you and I were talking about the plans for the for our time together, and there was a J word that kind of came up, and I don't want to say it in case you want to bring it up. But Islam is all about an inward struggle with oneself to gain greater God consciousness. That is Islam. It's see, believing in God as if God is everywhere, working on oneself to better oneself, and submitting to God's will. And God gave us, I mean, I could go on, I don't want to go on too long, but you know, God gave us body, mind, soul, and spirit. So you can pray five times a day and remember God when you're praying five times a day. But if you leave that prayer mat and you don't remember God, that's not holistically a spiritual Islam, right? Like, so Islam is not just about the rituals and routines. It's what you do outside of those rituals and routines. How do you carry yourself in this world? Are you able to see God in nature and other people? Do I realize that, Conrad, you have been created by God and I respect and want to show that to you, even though we are of different faith traditions and I'd be that way towards everybody. So this is what people don't understand, Muslims and non-Muslims, that Islam, when I say tradition, I mean 1500 years of spiritual, intellectual, philosophical tradition that has been forgotten. And unfortunately, that's what we're seeing with labels like conservative, moderate, and progressive. So that's why I call myself a traditional Muslim, even though I'm not looking like an Arab stereotype, which is what people often mm -hmm. think about. Okay. And so as we, as we kind of unpack that, I like that you've hit on the words we use <laughs> that come from the categories of the dominance of uh, Christianity and the Western political sphere. Yeah. 
because obviously if you're using terms left and right, it's always referencing the Western political climate with conservatives on the right, liberals on the left. But if you go to China, I mean, the communism's on the left. And so you might want, like, it's, it just reorient, it reorients everything. So it's, I like that you've brought up the words that we're using might not exactly transpose. So there seems to be this, um, in order to fully understand what you're saying, we either need to remap some of these words or use, use different ones. Does that sound roughly a little bit what you're talking about? Yes, because so when I use the word traditional, people equate that with being backwards, with being uneducated, with being from the past, with being not of the time. And that's not what the word means Islamically. So I always ask people, like you just said, what is your positionality when you're using these words? Because they don't mm -hmm. translate over. So if your positionality is in a Western framework, you know, conservative, progressive, moderate, that might make you feel good to categorize. But Islamically speaking, from a from an Islamic perspective, it makes no sense whatsoever because we don't have mm -hmm. those categories Islamically. Mm -hmm. And at you, you, you said the J word, the word I assume <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're referencing there is jihad. Yeah. And that's obviously a word that comes with a lot of baggage, a lot of pre, um, preconceived ideas. Yep. And I think it's safe to say someone from my perspective, it would come with a lot of ignorance around yep. it. The only exposure to that would be we come across it as extremist Islam on the news, terrorist attacks, jihad. Yep. But you were talking yep. about... Islam as a, as yes, you have these external practices, but it is a religion of the interior, the journey of the, of the self and the interior and the struggle moving towards, I suppose, the good. Yes. Tell me more about that and potentially the yeah. word jihad, which might, which, which is probably a sensitive thing to talk about. It is. And I'm so ready to go there because <laughs> oh, you are. Is, I'm okay. so ready to go there. I, I mean, I've been like refreshing what I've, what I've been reading. So I think this is so important for listeners to understand the complexity and how this word has been monopolized by um, extremists, as you say, or as Muslims will sometimes, um, Islamic scholars use the term puritanical reformists. And that's happened within Islam, just as in with Christianity, there's purity culture. The same thing has happened within Islam. There's puritanical reformists. Wahhabism is one of them, the biggest one. So the word jihad is Arabic and literally means effort or struggle. Now, there are two levels of jihad, Islamically speaking. There's the greater struggle or jihad and the lesser one. The greater struggle is called the jihad al-nafs. Nafs in Arabic means soul. A lot of Islamic philosophers have done extensive writings about the, a Muslim's greatest struggle. The greater jihad is our self, is our soul. And that struggle is against every challenge that clouds our soul from God consciousness. Challenges such as capitalism, challenges such as racism, challenges such as sexism, challenges such as inequities, um, poverty, systemic oppression, right? The struggles that we face, if we face trauma, we have to heal from that. If, if me, as who has faced divorce, I've, that's a struggle. That was a struggle for me. So as Muslims, we have a jihad, the struggle of our soul, and that is our greatest struggle 
from life on earth to death. Now, the lesser struggle is what is misunderstood as what people call like war against other people. A lot of people don't realize that Islam contains a lot of rules and regulations around war and that you cannot claim war on anyone else without there being substantive reason to self-defense. And that even if there is war, even to the level of if there's captives or prisoners, a hair on their head cannot be harmed. They have to be well fed and taken care of, you know, the, and I, I mean, there's examples of battles that happen during the Ottoman dynasty, like let's say 10th century and even before that, that details chronicles of war that happened where Muslim leaders were actually praised by their Christian adversaries for the way they treated and returned their prisoners in good health. So there's all of this context around jihad that, first of all, Islam has had puritanical reformists colonize true Islam and misrepresent jihad. And then non-Muslims also looking at Muslims, thinking that we're barbaric, that we just want to wage war on all the infidels, when that's not what jihad is. And Islam predominantly didn't even spread by the sword. It spread through spirituality. And that war was rarely used in circumstances of self-defense. So a lot of people have not done historical analysis on the word jihad, the contextuality from an Islamic perspective. You don't hear people talk about the struggle of our soul. You always hear about the sword being uptaken. So that hopefully clarifies it from an Islamic perspective. Mm. Yeah, I, I hear you paint a very different picture that people who are Christian and perhaps people who are Buddhist and different religions and even people who are non-religious would listen to that and go, yeah, I can get on board with this idea that there is this struggle that we all go through from birth to death, trying to move towards good, trying to move towards openness, inclusion. or And it sounds like something everyone can get on board with. I suppose one question I have is these puritanical reformers that you're talking about and you use the word colonize there. Now colonize is the way I think of it. It's like white dudes going over somewhere and making it making, you know, India making um, parts of Africa, making yeah. it look more like us. Yeah. Um, so when you say puritanical reformers colonizing and, and taking, cause you're, you're painting a very different picture of Islam mm-hmm. to that, which, politicians like Pauline Hanson would paint that she's a conservative politician in Australia. I'm not sure if you're aware of her. Um, mm. She, she would, the, the picture they paint, I suppose, as the stereotype is it is all about war. They want to make Sharia law, yeah. um, the law of Australia, and they yeah. want to enforce their religion in Australia. And that's why I brought up before the opposition to democratic values, because that's what they'll say. They'll say, well, they're trying to change out. They're trying to attach mosque and state when we've pulled apart church and state. Um, that's the picture that's painted. So I suppose, is that the picture that has come from the puritanical reformers view? Who are they? And like, who, yeah. um, how did they colonize, I suppose? Yeah. So quickly to address your Sharia point, it's hilarious because this is another misinterpretation. Sharia literally means the pathway. 
And Sharia law applies to people who embrace Islam. And Islam also contains within it the strong belief that when Muslims live in non-Muslims land, we abide by the law of the land. So as, as a Muslim, I live in the United States right now. Yes, I'm Canadian. I abide by U.S. law as a Muslim. Sharia refers to my own practices as a Muslim, which I can do regardless of where I live. So the whole notion that Muslims want to create Sharia, we don't actually need to because as a Muslim, we have complete rights to live as a Muslim wherever we are. So, I mean, that's, I just want to clarify this because from an Islamic perspective, it's pretty ridiculous, but also people lack critical thinking skills to break this down. So when I talk about colonization, and I can share some resources if people want to read more into this. Up until about the 18th century, Islamic civilizations were faring really well across the world. We had large empires that were kind of independent from Europe, independent from the West. Islam had huge roles to play in algebra, science, philosophy, all of the biggest you know, medicine advances, right? Now, in the 18th century, Napoleon invaded Egypt. And that was when the water dam broke, so to speak. And there were huge repercussions in terms of Egyptian civilization collapsed under Napoleon. And that was really the first time that Islam crumbled to European forces. Now, if you can imagine that your worldview and your way of life has now been completely broken apart by colonizers, there's different ways that you as a human being would make meaning of that in terms of, okay, what does this mean? Oops, sorry, my Instagram uh, screen limit just turned on. Um, <laughs> my apps turn off at 830. Um, so imagine that you're a Muslim, Egypt's been colonized, and you're trying to make sense of what on earth just happened. Our way of life, our civilization has been overtaken. Islam is being kind of taken over. So a group of Muslims who retain traditional thoughts did not see this as an act of God. They just thought, you know, we're going to continue being Muslim, practicing the spiritual Islam, and we're just going to keep being Muslim and demonstrating to people how Islam is. There was another group of people who thought, you know, man, we need to like side with the colonizers. We're going to try and change Islam because apparently something's wrong here. Like God did this to us. We must be doing something wrong. So we're going to kind of mold Islam into something that's a bit more appeasable to these Europeans. And then there was another category, and this is super important. There were people who saw colonization as a punishment from God by abandoning the literal puritanical perspectives of Islam. And so they thought, we have strayed from Islam. We have strayed from the way the Quran was revealed. We have to go back to following things by the book. And so there were certain schools of thought that came out of that where Islam was colonized from within the religion as a result of colonization, where you have Wahhabism, for example, that came up that came up about you know over 200 years ago. And Wahhabism basically is a by the book school of thought within Islam that only looks at literal interpretations of the Quran and it's very exoteric. And so that's what happened. So Wahhabism came about and gained a lot of traction because it is a very rigid, literal, puritanical way of understanding Islam that removes the spirituality, that removes the soul-focused work. Because look, folks, we have 
certain rules and guidelines that if you follow, you're guaranteed a place in heaven. And anyone who doesn't follow this is not a believer. They're not Muslim. They don't have the same rights as us. They're infidels. And so that school of thought is what you see predominantly in Saudi Arabia. And guess what? That's where a lot of mainstream Islamic education comes from in the West, because who has money to build mosques? Who has money to spread these curriculum? And so now when I talk about puritanical reformists, that's Wahhabism. And so it's happened from within Islam as a result of outside colonization, because that group, that group of people thought, you know, we've strayed. God is showing us a sign that we've strayed from Islam. We need to go back to the pure Wahhabism ways of understanding the religion. And so that's what I mean by colonization from outside resulted in puritanical schools of thought within Islam. And that's what we're seeing predominantly. And that's being misunderstood as Islam, minus the 1300 years before that, that was completely rich in philosophy, intellectualism, art, music, architecture. I mean, Islam has given so much to the West. And yet the, what Wahhabism done, has done is completely just shone a light on what it's done and completely erased everything before it. It sounds like the picture you're painting there is a very helpful one in bringing in the history that we, especially in the West, coming from a more European colonial history, like Muslim history, we have no idea no idea about it, never been taught it. You'd have to actually intentionally look into it. And then you go, oh, why would I? It's not even my heritage. It's not even, it's not even close. And so you've painted a really insightful picture that once again, isn't surprising. I suppose the things I'm hearing you say is that Islam is an ancient, 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 that's right. Ancient tradition (laughs) that has been around for a very long time, along with Christianity, along with Judaism, along with Buddhism, all these religions go for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And that trajectory of the religion over time would have some arc within it of change. It, in the Bible, you have the arc within it. You got the Old Testament and then you have the arc of the New Testament. And then Christians go, oh, look, it wasn't always like that. It's changed. Um, but I think whether it's that obvious or not within the text itself, this is what this is what religions do. And I find it interesting that you say, and I'm definitely no scholar, that you say around 200 years ago, this occurred because um, the friend of the show, Bree, who did a podcast with Richard Raw, this guy, Richard Raw would say that kind of what you're saying, but in the Christian world, he would say he's more orthodox. People would label him progressive and all of these things, but he's going, no, no, I'm very much more orthodox. And he says, the literalism came into Christianity and Protestantism today, where we read the Bible literally, homosexuality is an abomination, literally. Um, mm. Adam and Eve literally existed. Um, Genesis was, the world was literally created in six days. He goes, he says that's a very young interpretation of the text. And it sounds yeah. like you're saying something very similar around a similar time, a group of people began to read this text literally. And now we can get into that discussion, I suppose, because you're painting this picture of this religion and saying, this is what Islam is. But then these people who you're saying shifted to a literalistic view 200 years ago, they're the ones also claiming, no, no, you're wrong. 
Yeah. This is what Islam is. Unpack that for me. You know, I, I was thinking about that, um, preparing to chat, because I had a feeling that that would come up. And one of the things that a lot of Muslims, and I think non-Muslims don't realize, is that literal interpretations of the Quran can't go against a notion called sunnah in Arabic. So that means that um, the context of Quran verses, and then there's another thing that we look at as Muslims called hadith, which are narrations from the time of the prophet um, that were, were recorded after his death. So concepts that come from the Quran and hadith cannot contradict one another. So I'll give an example. Wahhabis would say that women, for example, have no right to drive, to work, you know, to have whatever, X, Y, and Z. That actually contradicts Islamic rights given to women that can be found in the Quran and other hadith. So you can't have literal interpretations of Islam go against other like longer held traditions that have been documented. And when I say the word hadith, non-Muslims and Muslims should realize that there's a science to understanding the context in which these narrations were revealed. There are stronger ones that have a really strong chain of transmission orally because Islam was predominantly an oral religion until it was recorded. I mean, Prophet Muhammad was illiterate. He memorized all of the revelations that were given to him. And then the Quran was recorded after his death. So there's stronger hadith and weaker ones. And Islam is a religion such that a lot of hadith can be cut and pasted and used literally. But people don't realize there's a science behind the narrations that are there. A lot of them were revealed for very specific contexts. And the same with the Quran. One Arabic word has multiple meanings because each Arabic word has a root of three letters. And those letters have numerous meanings. So there's a science and context to the Quran and these narrations from the Prophet. So, I mean, we could do a play-by-play -play of a lot of, you know, puritanical Wahhabi interpretations and if you look at Islamic texts and philosophers and scholars of Islam, they can, would be able to completely refute it based on documented textual evidence over the 1300 years that came before that mm -hmm. puritanical reformist interpretation came. Mm -hmm. So you would say, probably if I was to put it bluntly, that people like myself, people, largely Americans, Australians in general, don't actually understand what Islam is and what it stands for on the whole. Because the picture you're painting is, yeah. is, is potentially one that I would like to know, even people in the live chat here, how many people who are maybe... Australian or grown up in Australia, not attached to different um, cultures and religions. Like, do we know that what you're talking? Hey, is this the first time we've heard this understanding? Mm -hmm. And I suppose, I yeah, go. I was going to say a lot of Muslims don't know it either. That's the sad part. That's the sad I part. I didn't know it. 
this, the things that I'm sharing with you today, Conrad, I didn't know until about 18 months ago. So and I've been a Muslim for 39 years. So talk to me about your <laughs> journey then, because that's, that's a very short period of time. Yeah. Just describe to me, I suppose, how did you get here? How do you get to this point where you go, this religion actually isn't oppressive to women and homosexuals, and it isn't actually a, uh, a war-dominating, seeking religion. Um, it's actually one of personal, the path towards what many might call enlightenment or the path toward God. How did you get, talk to me about your upbringing, and then what might have led you here? So... I want to maybe share too that most Muslims don't learn that Islam is oppressive for war and all of that stuff. Like that's not the main Islam. That's not the, that's not what most Muslims learn. That's a very small minority. A lot of Muslims are taught Islam in terms of you pray every day, you believe in God, you believe in Muhammad being a prophet. We give to charity, we fast, we hope to one day go for a hajj, we try and be good, we try and reconcile with other people when we've done wrong. So I grew up in a very typical immigrant Muslim household, um, just learning about Islam in terms of it, mm. in terms of its practices. And that's really common. So how did you read the Quran then? Because you're talking about um, the contextualization of these texts and looking at the historicity of where it came from and how to interpret it but many might interpret it literally did you interpret any of these texts literally and did that shift or were you always kind of along this path so that's the problem conrad a lot of what people are learning about the quran they're not accessing themselves it's through other people who claim to have intellectual hierarchies of knowledge and this is the biggest problem within Muslim spaces. We're not taught to access Islam itself when God actually revealed in the Quran, number one, that there is no compulsion in religion. Number two, that Islam is accessible to believers such that we need to access it with our own critical thinking, make sense of it, and act out of our own free will. We're not taught as Muslims to think critically about Islam and use our God-given intellect. And I think the loss of intellectualism and the loss of critical thinking has been detrimental to Islamic societies today, especially in the West. And so when you're just taught the basics of Islam, do this, don't do this, that's haram, that's religiously forbidden, you do that growing up. So when I was taught the Quran as a South Asian, I was taught how to read Arabic. I was not taught what how to understand what I was reading. So I would read the Quran in English. But even then, a lot of the Quran is similar to the Bible in terms of their stories and narrations. So it's not a, it's not a book of rulings. There are very few rulings in Islam. Um, people don't understand that. So Islam, like, you know, the Quran has a lot of stories, but I, I didn't access the Quran in Arabic. I accessed it in English. And I had my grandparents around sometimes to support that or my parents. So I grew up with a very generic understanding of what Islam is, you know, be good, don't do this. Um, and I would say it was about five years ago that I really wanted something deeper. I was seeking more spirituality. I, I had just been through divorce in Canada. Um, I'd worked in the Muslim community for about eight years. And I said, there, there has to be something more like I'm seeking this closer connection to God. 
And I decided to move to the States for a year just to try things out. And when I moved here, I ended up, first of all, meeting my husband really soon. And now I live here. But I also ended up working in um, sexual violence prevention spaces within Muslims, where now we're talking about Muslims harming other Muslims. So, you know, forget jihad and war. We're talking about people who instill harm on other fellow believers, right? And so I was an educator and I would talk about, you know, sexual violence is a result of power and control and it's about dominance. It's not about sex and sexuality. And then I had my own spiritual epiphany when I learned about this concept of theodicy, which is within Christianity as well. Theodicy being the question of, well, if God is so good and just, then why do evil and harm exist? And I walked into a lecture in Toronto by this world-renowned Islamic scholar, and he had a three-hour lecture on theodicy. And I literally walked out feeling like I had an epiphany. Like all of a sudden, <laughs> things just clicked for me, where I was like, oh my God, I just had a spiritual breakthrough. <laughs> like I finally understand what I was seeking. And the whole reasoning is that when we talk about theodicy, if God is good, why does harm and evil exist? Harm and evil is not from God, it's from us. And Islam understands harm as coming from a disconnected disconnection from our God consciousness. And Muslims believe we're born in this very sacred state. We Christians believe differently depending on what sect you're from, but Muslims believe we're born in this pure state that God has literally breathed into us. And as we go through our lives and we age and mature, the pulls of the world cloud this God consciousness and our ego starts taking over. And the Quran actually journals, uh, sorry, uh, conveys that we journey through our soul. There's three levels that Muslims aim to journey through throughout our lives. So as we become um, clouded from our God consciousness, the way in which we make decisions is not in line with our higher spiritual self. And one of those consequences could be arrogance. It could be anything like loss of control of one's anger. It could be dominating another person emotionally, physically, sexually. It could be oppression, racism, misogyny, sexism, homophobia, any of those things. But they come from within our soul. It's not from God. And when I heard that, I was like, that just completely changed how I approached my work and my understanding as a Muslim. And I'm like, I need to understand more of Islamic spirituality and psychology, which people don't realize Islamic psychology, which is basically Western psychology, was born in the ninth century. Freud was late and very inaccurate with his understandings because he only focuses on the mind and he doesn't address the soul. But anyway, um, that was my epiphany about 18 months ago, and it led me to leave my nonprofit work because I couldn't talk about harm among Muslims by talking about power and control. We have a soul. Like, that's what's being neglected. That's what's causing arrogance and pride. Trauma impacts the soul. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of work with um, survivors of sexual violence around trauma. It's not just the body and mind. It's the soul that needs to heal, especially when your religion has been misused against you. So my, you know, 18 months of, like, research has just come out of this awakening that my focus is now myself. I'm not... 
I before was considered an activist or an advocate. I was always like, change the system, dismantle, you know, powers to be and dismantle oppression. I'm like, wait a second, Islamic understanding is, there's a verse in the Quran that says, indeed, God will not change the condition of a people until they change what is in themselves. So as a Muslim, I have to center my own soul first. I have to focus on my own spirituality, my own ego. I have to have my own internal jihad happening before I'm trying to help and support other Muslims. And I always thought the opposite. I defined myself as a Muslim by helping other people and preventing harm. But that's not the way it works, Islamically speaking. So that has been a complete paradigm shift. And so the way I approach things now with my work is that it comes from this new understanding of spirituality that's actually been there for 1500 years. Mm -hmm. So look, I mean, I had Islamic education growing up and it was only 18 months ago that I came to this realization. And there's a hunger for spirituality in Muslim spaces. And I've seen that in my own work. Like I started my own business last year and I've been shocked at how rapidly it's grown. And some of it is sexual health. I think a large part of it is that Muslims are craving and needing this esoteric spiritual perspective that has been erased from our tradition. And that's mm. what I'm really thinking non-Muslims don't have that perspective either, which I don't blame because look, Muslims don't have it either. Yeah, you paint a very detailed tapestry of ideas there where it sounds like you found the the language and the i suppose tools for want of a better word to search yourself and find out what really drives change and what really brings healing and what really pulls us as humanity forward you found that in the spirituality of the Islam you grew up in and you've you've you sounds like you found a whole layer of depth that I think would be would be a similar journey for a lot of people across a lot of religions you've got I'm hearing you unpack these various different levels you've got the what you're saying the minority of extremists that only the west see because it fits our narrative of look how great we are they're a threat to us let's uh, vilify and then you've got um what perhaps is sounding like a bit of like a just a cultural ritualized, here's where we're from, here's what we learn, we just teach these traditions and practices, we pray this, we, we do this, and you're saying that was handed to you by other people, you didn't quite have the tools necessary to, to do it for yourself, as you're saying, and now as you study it further, I, and, and that's where I want to get your take on this, is that you're describing you studying it further, reading the Quran yourself, um, listening to scholars, going back into history, all of these things seem to have given you a depth of what we will call spirituality, that indescribable depth that you're talking about, the depth of humanity that, we, that we're trying to describe and religion operates in that realm. When you say read it for yourself and, and this depth you're describing and you're saying that there's this thirst in Muslim communities for that same thing that you've discovered, I come across the idea of research for yourself do your own research and and i'm only going to parallel my christian world here and you can tell me where it aligns a lot of conservative christians 
that's kind of what they say. They'll say, read it for yourself. A lot of, you know, anti-vaxxers and, and conspiracy theorists, they'll say, do the research yourself. And, and my position, I've always gone, oh, but I don't know how to read scientific papers and scientific literature. And, oh, if I just read the Old Testament, I'm going to read it literally because that's the culture in which I was formed. His literal historicism is what I was schooled in. So if I pick up that text for myself, I'm probably going to come away with a more fundamentalist conservative worldview from that text. It's only when I, I guess, Ed, like look at the history more, the context more, that's when the depth you're describing talk uh, expands. So when you say we need to journey for ourselves, do you think it's easy for people to do that? Or do you think there are barriers in the way of people in um, Muslim in the Muslim tradition to yeah. find what you're talking about? Yeah, really, really great question. And it's, you know, it's something I get asked a lot through like direct messages is like, I'll, I'll do a post and people will say like, wait, where do I learn about Islamic spirituality? Where do I learn about this colonization? I'll actually send them books that they can read or I'll send them articles. So the problem is kind of twofold. Number one is you're right. We don't know where to look because we've only been given access to small slices of knowledge and perhaps certain translations of the Quran, and even worse, certain celebrity sheikhs or scholars, that we believe that we need another person to give us permission to access Islam. And that's the difference, I think, in Islam is that a lot of Muslims would, I come across, not judging people who reach out about this, there's a hesitancy and a fear around even Google searching or looking for information themselves related to Islamic perspective. So I always get asked like, Samira, what's the Islamic perspective on this? Or what, where can I find this? And in my head, I'm like, why don't we just, why can't you just Google it and learn to critically appraise websites? And then like, like to me, it's just, we're not taught how to think critically. We also don't know who Islamic scholars to trust. And there's a whole, you know, depth of people that, I mean, works that I read from the past and present that people just aren't aware of because we just, we have been exposed to the Wahhabist way of thinking that has unfortunately completely, you know, gutted the spirituality perspective, which I want to say that's Sufism. The esoteric aspect of Islam is Sufism. It's, Sufism is not a sect. It's not that you're a goofy Sufi and you're not a traditional Islam. You know, I get that you're a Sufi. Oh, you're one of those like weird people who just sit and meditate all day. No, I'm, uh, I'm a Muslim who does everything that you do externally. And I'm on a path to try and better my soul by remembering God outside of those external practices. So Sufism is the esoteric, dimension of Islamic spirituality. And Sufism was born at the time of the prophet and continued to this day. So when you said how many percentages of certain populations fit within, you know, fundamentalist, moderate, cultural Muslims or traditional, it's really hard to say. But one thing that scholars have said is that a lot of Eastern Muslim countries and civilizations have retained the spiritual esoteric dimensions. 
So Muslims, for example, in West Africa, 99% are probably on some sort of spiritual path within the subcontinent, within Pakistan, Indonesia, even there are strong strings of Muslims who are on these esoteric paths. Um, Northern Africa, Algeria has some of the, you know, strongest ties to Sufism. So Sufism has been there since the dawn of Islam and has ties to other mystical aspects of Christianity, right? And Judaism even, There's, it's no different. We're all Abrahamic faith traditions. Islam, ideally, Muslims should see Islam as, a, as being pluralistic. We're all on a mountain going up different paths towards the same peak. Islam just happens to be a different hiking path than Christianity is, for example. Mm-hmm. So uh, just through the chat here, can you uh, define esoteric for us as we, yeah. as, yeah. Esoteric means inner dimension. So God consciousness, so spirituality. So your connection with God on the inside, which is ultimately between you and God. No one can see that. No one can judge that. So that your first assumption about Samira, you don't wear a hijab. And me saying that people assume that I'm not religious, that I'm you know, not as religious as a woman who does wear a hijab. No one can see inside my heart and soul except for God. And that's what's meant by esoteric. Muslims are meant to carry God within themselves from 24 seven. And so that's the part that has been forgotten that is part of our rich tradition. So that's the word tradition. It's a really esoteric philosophical, intellectual, spiritual tradition. It's not meant to be ritualistic. And I suppose words like esoteric and spiritual, these are these these words which we always use, especially the word spiritual, but we never quite know what it means. I remember growing up Christian and a lot of people saying, how's your walk with Jesus? How's your walk with God? Mm. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, (laughs) for me, I've always been like, be specific, please. Like, how's your spiritual journey going? And it's like, it's a hard word. We, we all think we know what it means, but a lot of placeholders can go in the place of that word. So what I'm gathering your meaning from that is this very personal, subjective, inner journey. It's hard to always describe. It, it, it's hard to point to, and it's often always spoken about in metaphor or in different um, religious stories and, and things like that. It sounds like yes. this that is the realm of, of religion and some might use the word mysticism, this like yeah. the the God can't be known, but only alluded to, pointed to, yes. uh, hinted at th- through uh, all of these things. So I, I guess that that's kind of what I'm getting from your answer there. I suppose yeah. what percentage of Muslims sit in each camp? Because we're told and... Uh, uh, other friends of the show I've recently had on would would say, Samira, that's great. Like, I, I love what you're saying. Um, it sounds good. Uh, friend of the show, Yasmin, might say, sounds good, but not for me. I prefer atheism. I was married to an Al-Qaeda operative. No thanks. I don't need any, mm. of, any of it. You're this kind of almost reformed, intellectualized, like, interpretation of it. But most Muslims aren't like that. What percentage would you say sit in each camp? How many, if Western white 
colonial powers sit at the top and say Islam is a threat to Western democracy. What percentage would you say are a threat? And then what percentage would you say sit in this category of just kind of traditional cultural Muslims that haven't necessarily journeyed to those same depths you're talking about? And then how many sit what sit with a similar understanding to what you're talking about? So I'm going to be honest, that's a really hard question to answer. I've only ever experienced um, Islam in the West. I've never lived in the East. I mean, I've visited. Um, and also every Muslim won't even categorize Islam the way I have. So some of them may say like the cultural Muslims, for example, the ones that have been have rituals passed down, they may think that they're spiritual and esoteric. Um, somebody who is a, a fundamentalist will say, are you kidding me? I'm spiritual. I'm the closest to God here. So it's really hard to paint that picture. I do Let's want go to see it, like, with the like, West. You can just stick yeah. within your experience. Oh, the West, the majority are probably what I was before my epiphany, like the cultural yeah. passed down. And I'm talking about immigrant Muslims, not African-American or black Muslims, which have been Muslim in the West much longer than immigrants have, right? So Black uh, black and, and African Muslims have been around for over 400 years in the West. So immigrant Muslims are newer. We just tend to forget that. And immigrant Muslims can also be racist um, and anti-Black. Um, so I would say the majority of immigrant Muslims are probably the cultural passed down Islam I would say the next category is the spiritual esoteric dimension, which I've actually noticed is gaining a lot more awareness now because more scholarship is coming from my generation about it. So that's been super awesome to see. And I will say the smallest category is the fundamentalist category, which is what everyone's freaked out about. But it's a super small category that, for, as you said, for convenience reasons, gets hyper-focused on. Um, and in the East, it's the same. I mean, Muslims are over 1 billion in population, only about, let's say, 5 to 6 million in the United States. That's not a lot of people in the West. The majority of Muslims are in the East, um, where you have very strong ties to tradition and, and esotericism overall. Mm-hmm. Because you're making things a, a little bit complicated there. Um, because what you've said is, and this is what happens on the podcast when you go into nuance and discover, oh, there's lots of different people with lots of different interpretations, with lots of different backgrounds, histories, upbringings. <laughs> Jeez, it's complicated when we really get into it. And I can't yeah. just box, I can't, I can't use just one word, Samira. I can't just say Islam no. is this. And geez, for news headlines, that would be convenient if I could just say Islam is just this. I can understand why people draw parallels and, and say, Samira, you're a progressive. You're taking these intellectualized, you're clearly a highly educated person. And some might say you're a progressive who's now picking and choosing what they want out of the Quran and what they want from their tradition. You're, and, and the real critique here, I think, as I've encountered it and spoken to many people from different perspectives, the claim seems to be something like, 
you don't believe in an absolute truth. And this is one mm. it, it, it is thrown around a lot within Christianity. So if, so if a progressive Christian is to say, listen, well, it's context. It's very subjective. It's our personal journey. We all can't know these things. Well, historically, it meant this, this, and this. If we're to put that in the modern day, scholars say X, Y, and Z. Um, some people would say, I can't be bothered with that. I give up on it altogether. But you're, you're painting just this picture that is so nuanced and it's so subjective. There can't be any objective truth. You're, you're kind of saying that there's more than one truth and that, what, Christians can find another path to the mountain as well? And Christians would say, well, no, Islam is the wrong religion. Like Christ Christianity, Jesus is the only way. It doesn't sound like you stand for any necessarily necessarily objective truth. That's that's what I feel like people might hear and interpret. Well, I would say the only objective truth that a Muslim like me has to stand for is that there's God. The rest ultimately doesn't matter. Like you can't control the rest. Um, and when when you know that mountain analogy is used, it also assumes that. Christians would look at Muslims as another path up the mountain. You know, it would assume that Christians don't believe they have a monopoly on God or the truth, capital T. Um, so these are very intellectualized ideas that even I find Muslims struggling with because it, it requires them to, like you said, bust out of this box. And to me, what, what, I think my spiritual journey has really given me resolve around is nothing ultimately matters to me except for my, in terms of what other people think, perceive, believe, as, as long as I'm centered in my own journey, because I, I've spent so much of my career and life as a Muslim defining my Muslimness by what I did externally, serve others, you know, selflessly. And we hear that as Muslims, like serve humanity, you know, gain good reward, just give selflessly. Islam and other religions did not create us to neglect our own soul and our own needs. So yes, absolutely. People will disagree and think that I'm wishy-washy and, you know, too intellectual. And I'm like, that's fine. Like take what works and leave the rest. I don't, I think that spiritual openings come to people when it's meant to be for them. And five years ago, when I was told by a scholar of Islam, Smira, you can't gain your spirituality through your work. You gain your spirituality through your connection with God. I was, I laughed and thought, no, my work is everything. It's, it's, it's how I see myself as a Muslim. Yet, you know, four years later, I walk out of the same person's lecture with a spiritual epiphany. I have to be in the right time, space, and mind frame. And I think for people who are struggling with concepts that we've spoken about or with their own journey, I would say give yourself grace and compassion that take what works for now and leave the rest behind. And there's no urgency in terms of, you know, I don't know, spiritually like transforming ourselves. Like as Muslims believe, for example, that we have to gain spirituality out there. And I've talked about this on my Instagram posts, like no, as Muslims, we have spirituality within us. We were born with it. God breathed, literally breathed into us. It's been, as a scholar Al-Ghazali says, he talks about spirituality gets kind of hidden 
when the struggles of this world cloud or dust our spiritual mirror and spiritual practices, Islamically speaking, polish that mirror to reveal God consciousness. It's in us. We don't have to seek spirituality out there. We're born with it. And I think that is uncomfortable to a lot of people because that means that you have to deal with the complexity of life. You have to deal with your struggles. You have to deal with the fact that doing X necessarily doesn't lead to Y, which is heaven. Like, you know, we were created to struggle. We were created to work on ourselves. And for some people though, leaving that box is scary. It requires a lot of um, strength to step out of that Islam box. And that's what I, I think have compassion for people who struggle in terms of understanding what I'm saying, I'm like, I get it. Like that, this is your path and um, you're at where you're at for a reason. And we're all on our own journeys. And so when people say I'm being wishy-washy or too intellectual, I'm like, that's fine. Just take what works and leave the rest. But I mm -hmm. do know what I believe in and that's all that matters. Mm. So I, I suppose when people hear that, they go, okay, so if you can't literally read some answers in the Quran, you can't just open it and go, oh, do this, do X, do Y. People would say, where does your compass then come from? You're talking about these concepts like God and the journey of jihad and struggle that you have within yourself to move towards good and become close to quote unquote God. But how do you know which direction to go? How do you know what works? When you say to somebody, take what works and leave the rest, how are we to know what works? Especially when you alluded to at the beginning, if darkness comes from humans, if this, mm -hmm. if the, if this hurt and violence and trauma that we inflict upon each other is not from God and it's actually from humans. And Christians often believe in the doctrine of total human depravity. Humans are just pieces of crap. We're the worst mm -hmm. things ever. And so when you say take what works, that's a scary thing for many people listening because they go, well, I can't be trusted. If, if I'm listening to myself, I'm just going to be selfish. I'm going to be hedonistic. I'm not going to care. And there's that, that if, if there's that struggle, if I have to rely on myself to know what works, Samira, how do you know you're headed the right direction if you don't have a literal guidebook that you're reading in a literal way to point you in that direction? So unfortunately, with modernization and globalization, Islam used to be a collectivist religion. We used to live in communities around other people that contained elders and scholars and spiritual teachers. And we have lost that because look at me, I'm a Muslim and I live in, you know, Washington, D.C. I don't have my you know, well, actually, I do have a spiritual community here. I have a spiritual guide. I have people on a spiritual path. I have access to intellectual knowledge and people that I can ask questions about. I have practices that help me gain awareness about my thoughts, what my true motives are. So I have the ability to go inwards and be like, oh, Samira, like, why are you doing this? Why are you responding to this way to this person? Or why are you posting that? Are you posting that post to get attention? Or are you actually trying to educate? Or you're trying to just get more likes? That's the nuance of introspection that I think Muslims lack. But you need a community to do that. 
And Islam from the beginning always was collectivist. So Muslims had a spiritual guide starting with the prophet. He was a spiritual guide for people. So they'd come to him with questions. I'm struggling with this. What do I do? And he always led by example and gave them suggestions and thoughts. And part of it is, you know, that spiritual community has been lost because we're now individualistic, right? Like collectivism has been broken apart. And so a lot of Muslims don't have that around them. And so you're right. It's scary to think about, well, what do I do? How do, how do I, you know, do what you're, what you're claiming Islam is? You do need a spiritual community. You do need a spiritual guide. You need access to intellectual scholarship and works from the past. You need the, you need self-awareness, you need humility, and you need to also be able to literally like ask God for guidance, say like, I am like struggling, like show me signs and show me the way. And there's a lot of Quranic verses that talk about, you know, that God gives people signs that if we only knew what the signs were, we may gain more insight. So there's no one formula apart from what used to be a spiritual community. And that has been broken apart and lost. Although I, I know that in the West it's being formed electronically and now you know thanks to covid people are connecting online a lot more but if you look at the tradition of islam when the prophet was first revealed islam he was that guide and there were other scholars around and elders and learned people that was a community and that you need a like the truth like you know the saying of you it takes a village to raise a child it also takes a village to, I think, create humanistic, compassionate spaces for people. And Islam has lost that. And yet that's what it takes, I think, to, to embark on the spiritual journey. Because you're right, you can't do it alone. You do need support and guidance and other people around you who are also on similar journeys. Mm. Yeah, it sounds, you're highlighting there the importance of connectedness to people who are older, more experienced, a wider tradition, a community that then all comes together to help us navigate the difficult situations in life. Should I take this job? Should I do this? Am I doing this for selfish reasons? And it sounds like behind all of those movements, there sounds to, there seems like there's the press toward what does make me more loving? What does make me more inclusive as a person? What does make me accept people more? And I think no matter whether you're religious or not, I think that's the common thread that I hear. That is ultimately it. That is mm -hmm. ultimately it. So there's a, there's a few different angles that are, that are kind of left. And one thing I keep hearing in, in every conversation I have, wh whether it's about politics, but especially in religion, there's this war that seems to be waged on who gets to define what. And there's the Western media narrative that says, we will define Islam as the loudest extremists. And then there is potentially some Muslims who might say we get to define um, Islam because we read it the most clearly. We, it's written there. I'm doing exactly as it says. And then you have uh, Muslims like yourself that say, 
I was born in it. I was raised in it. This is my tradition. This is my heritage. This is my culture. And I've come here and I'm actually seeking it the hardest. And so I think I also get to define it as well. And and what what happens with this with this battle is that we all want some exclusive claim to what what the term Islam is or what it stands for. And so there is this battle over who gets to define Islam. And many people would hear you talking and say, that's nice, but that's not Islam. Um, friend of the show, Yasmin Muhammad would go, that's nice. I like that, but that's not Islam. Dr. Zudi Jassa, who I just had on, who brings in the political mm-hmm. element of it. He would say, that's nice. I, he might even agree with a lot of what you're saying because he says, you know, he's part of the reform movement. This is how he reads it. He goes, I think these texts don't literally mean do these certain things like many people have with the Bible being read literally as well. Um, but he would even say, that's nice, but that's not what it what it is. It sounds like for a lot of these people, you're pushing for reform in some way. You're saying... Islam has been too influenced by Wahhabism and this more extreme interpretation of it. And you're trying to pull it back the other way. Is that is that right to say? So I see what you're saying. I actually don't think I'm reforming Islam. Okay. Because what I'm talking about has existed for 1,500 years. Hmm. So when I say traditional, I mean, I'm going back to scholars mm. from like the fourth, fifth, you know, century, you know what I mean? Like I'm going back to traditional Islam, like Al-Ghazali's mm. one scholar, for example, Rumi was not mm-hmm. a non-Muslim poet. He was an Islamic scholar and mystic, mm. another person who's been colonized, but another podcast. Um <laughs> If I hear another Rumi quote in a yoga, I also teach yoga. If I hear another Rumi quote in a yoga class where it sounds like his poems about an ex-boyfriend, I will lose my crap (laughs) because his poems are all about God and the divine and drunkenness is a metaphor for being in spiritual bliss with God. But anyway, um, okay. but yeah, I don't believe I'm reforming Islam. Mm -hmm. I'm going back to the way Islam has been and still is in the East and Mm. has just been forgotten. So when you listen to friends of the show, like Dr. Judy Zudi Jassa, and you hear him come at that political angle. And I noticed when I spoke to him, you're coming from this very, from a very, I, I am from a family of immigrants to Canada. This is the background I come from. This is the cultural context of Islam I grew up in. And Whereas he seemed to always be pointing back to, yeah, but look at um, Saudi Arabia, look at Egypt, look at Afghanistan, look at Iraq. They've like, he seems to imply, and I feel like this is what the conservative Westerner will imply, that there is something within the heart of Islam that desperately wants to, and this is where I bring in the political element, that desperately wants to connect mosque and state. And they keep pointing to these countries saying, yeah, but look at that country. That's what they're doing. They're reading it this way. They're interpreting it this way. And they're making it the law of the literal land. And he, he almost exclusively pointed to those countries. 
Yeah. What is your, I suppose, your take on it? What is he seeing or overemphasizing or not emphasizing enough? What's your take on, on that perspective as we encounter it? Because that's the narrative we will get. And I say we as in me, a white dude in Australia on the news. He is more likely to pop up on my news channel than perhaps someone like you. What, what's the difference in perspective there? My understanding is let's break down those countries and systems of oppression into smaller counterparts of people who have their own internal struggles with their soul and it's manifesting through power, control, aggressiveness, greed. That's the link that I think people don't understand especially people who are responding to the political climate, because I've also heard, you know, Islamic liberation theology is another idea that has come up. A lot of Muslim activists want to reform Islam to respond to political issues in the West. So there's this Islamic liberation theology, which is an ironic name because you don't need Islam and liberation beside each other. I mean, it's just, it's just kind of redundant, but um, when you look at like spiritual perspectives, but Let's break those systems of oppressions down into smaller counterparts of many people who are facing their own struggles with their soul. And because they don't have the tools to deal with those struggles, the arrogance, the power, the greed, the misogyny, you know, the pillage that they create, it manifests in what we're seeing. And I think that's the missing part, that verse in the Quran, you know, chapter 13, verse 11 Indeed, God will not change the condition of a people until they change what is in themselves. If only every Muslim on planet Earth would turn as much attention inward as they did outward, maybe a lot of the issues that we have would actually be resolved. And that's the part that is the struggle because it's harder to go inwards. It's harder to have that greatest struggle, that greater jihad of one's soul. It is challenging. You need us. You need a certain level of humility, of surrender. That's what Islam means: submit, surrender. It's so much easier to inflict power and control and arrogance and greed on other people than it is to fix the root of the problem, which is your soul and you. And I and I'm my work now and my understanding is that's what we have to be doing if we want to fix the issues in our communities and or in the greater world, we have to turn inwards. It's only then that the the way that we work on ourselves will manifest in our relationships, will manifest and ripple out into how other people perceive us and how we respond to people, which battles we choose to engage in, not Metaphorically speaking, let's not take battles to be actual literal, <laughs> but you know, somebody who direct messages me a really condescending comment, I hit delete. I'm not even going to read it. I mean, I used to want to get into arguments, but I'm like, that's ego. It, that's egotistical of me. Like, why? I know what my truth is. That's the battle of the soul. That's the level that that's what we don't have. And that's what we're seeing with corruption and everything else politically happening is People are, don't have the tools to turn inward. Mm-hmm. You're talking about a deep transformation or indeed conversion of the individual, to use a religious word, so that if change is to come, it can't 
it, it has to start from within seems to be that central theme that, that you're pulling out there. But it's at this point, Samira, where you now sound like, to some, the radical lefty. But also within what you've just said, a critique of the radical lefty in the, in the same way, because you've used the, the buzzword and this is what's happened politically. There are certain academic terms that are co-opted for the political culture war that is politics right now, especially in America. Critical race theory is one weapon that they use mm. to go, oh, and they throw that and it's like, well, you haven't defined that very well. I'm not sure you know what you're talking about there, but it's, but it's a weapon used to be a trigger point. And I think systems of oppression is now becoming one of these, um, these political cultural buzzwords. But in what you're saying, if, if, you know, some listeners of the show who might be triggered by that can push past it and go, what you're saying is when, when friends like Dr. Sudhijasa say the connective tissue is Islam, when Yasmin Muhammad says, the, the connective tissue to all these problems, women, uh, oppression of homosexuals, oppression of women, violence, the connective tissue is Islam. What I'm hearing you say is the connective, that is not the connective tissue. You're saying the connective tissue are more overreaching, more overarching, drives for power, drives um, for control, uh, poverty, uh, colonial things that might be oppression from one culture to another you're you're saying let's break this apart into little like what's the issue and then we might be able to pinpoint oh well is it actually poverty is it actually a need for power is it actually an entrenchment of authoritarianism is it i I see you pushing towards a greater atomization because i've presented it as this that we, we want one unifying rule and people go, well, the unifying rule for the difficulties the West might have with Islam, well, it's because of Islam. Let's just, it's just easier to say that. But you're saying, yeah. well, if we're going to look at these countries, let's look individually geopolitically at the forces that shape them and what's going on with, within those countries. Is that really what you're breaking down there? Well, yes, and even more granular to say that people make up those issues that are happening Mm. and if the muslims specifically for example if the muslims in saudi arabia have lost connection with their soul and god consciousness that's going to manifest in their actions so our you know so we need people to turn inward and address their own egos and souls if we want things in the world to change And that's a very fluffy answer and probably doesn't make people very happy when we're talking about Saudi Arabia, for example. But if you're looking at how Islam understands harm and evil existing in the world, it comes from us when we're disconnected from our God consciousness. It's the same concept as restorative justice, right? So some people will say, you know, when somebody sexually assaults somebody, like prison, yes, like lock them up, right? Other people, and this is contained within Islam as well, would say, well, in order for harm to stop happening, people have to stop harming. We have to rehabilitate. And rehabilitation comes from awareness that you've committed harm and you are dedicated to repairing that with supports around you. So restorative justice or transformative justice is an example a a present day example of what Islam 
how Islam understands harm and oppression as existing in the world. So if that parallel helps people understand, yeah, it's the journey well, I, within. I think you've unified, and this is me connecting dots here, and we'll see if they're well connected. But I feel like you've unified the very divide that exists between left and right, between progressive and conservative, because you've moved through those layers. On the top layer, you might have the conservative that wants to blanket and say. Islam is the connective tissue, it's the problem. Then you've gone, well, what are the systems of oppression that operate within there that influence and act on people? But then you've said, okay, but let's go even a layer before that and underneath that to the layer of the individual. And this is where you go, you go from, if I'm to categorize into these polarizing terms, conservative, liberal, conservative in this interesting way because the conservative is all about the individual. Uh, I remember watching an Australian TV show Q&A when Jordan Peterson was on there and they said, what should we do about climate change and these big problems that we need to solve collectively? And he said, clean your room. Look, like, look at yourself, like start at the level of individual. And that annoys a lot of progressives going, these are big, we need to work together collectively. And I see you trying to marry the two. The yeah. critique of maybe the cancel culture left is like, stop yelling at them for being wrong. Stop just vilifying and condemning that as being the problem. Yes, there are systems of oppression that need addressing, but you're also talking about the very inherent importance of coming from the right place. So perhaps we don't get hung up in this is it, is, are, you, are you unpacking this, the easy, how easy it is to slip into the ego war? Like, it's very easy to have the right motive going, okay, racism's happening here, oppression's happening over there. I'm going to call this person out. Mate, you know this, yeah. this, this, you need to change, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And you, you mentioned before when you got that abusive message, you went, well, if I engage in that, that's ego. So I'm not going to engage in this way. Are you saying something like, if we look inward to this, inner God, what's our motives coming from? What's the heart of this? What's our spirit saying? And then move outward. Will that then make our dismantling of the systems of oppression more effective and less likely to be caught up in what you're talking about in these, in these ego battles? Yes. And it's, and I want to say like, I didn't come up with this. This is Islamic tradition saying it. <laughs> I'm just kind of, I'm just trying to, I think I'm able to contextualize it maybe in examples that resonate, but that's a, that's the practical application of Islamic tradition and spirituality. Yes. And I'm somebody who does that dance is like, you know, Bronfen Brenner has that ecological model. So there's like the, the, the biggest system and then all the way down to the individual. I've worked in all of those levels, like systems, communities, societies, individuals. So we need simultaneity right? We can't just look at systems. And like you said, try to find one common thread that's going to answer the question or make us feel better about understanding why something is happening. I mean, we're living, we're complex. And so coming from an, you know, Islamic tradition, we also have to look at the individual. Like, otherwise, we'd be ignoring Islamic teachings from, you know, 1500 years of of where, where does harm, evil, oppression come from? It's like somebody, for example, I mean, this is another example. You brought up like critical race theory, but it's somebody who takes like diversity, um, equity, and inclusion training and intellectualizes that at this level. I've done that training. I'm not racist. 
but it doesn't seep any further than their brain. Like it doesn't go into their heart. It doesn't help them reflect on how they have implicit biases. Like that's the, that's the, that's like, you can't just, we can't just intellectualize. And I know I maybe do this, but we can't just intellectualize and not go, let it go deeper within ourselves. And that's what I think is missing is that deeper, like absorption of, of what I'm maybe presenting from Islam, for example. Yeah. So is this where we connect back with religion? Is this where we connect back with your practical Islam? When you go, okay, how do we make this deeper? Because yeah, we've just brought this to this level of let's talk about it, unpack it, pull it apart. What's this idea, this idea, which is really my realm is, is what I do. But Samira, how do I begin to treat, like, how do I embody that? How do I do as you say and center myself in the ideas you're talking about? How do I begin to look inward, transform, begin this practice of jihad, that inner struggle of always reflecting and moving towards the good and, and minimizing the, the evil that might come out? How, how do I do that? Yeah. And it's funny. It's, it's, I would say something similar to a Muslim who says, how do I unlearn having shame around sex? How do I unpack that? Because it's a very yeah, visceral right feeling, yeah. right? Just like you had Dr. Tina on your show and she talked about yes. shame, right? So first of all, I often will tell people we have to start with what we know and where we learned it from. So really taking time to gain awareness of what is my knowledge about Islam? <laughs> where did I learn it from? What do, what does this, how does this knowledge inform me and my actions and my biases? How do I respond when I see images or come across Muslims? So self-awareness, like going inward, kind of using a cognitive behavioral approach, which Islamic psychology does as well. Like, what are your thoughts? Because those thoughts lead to feelings, which leads to action. So what are your thoughts? Like gain self-awareness, create time and space in your home to just sit and contemplate. Like, what? yeah, what do I know about Islam? Where did I learn it from? Fox News? Do I actually have access to Islamic scholarship? Like, have I actually talked to, you know, a professor of Islamic studies at a credible university? <laughs> like, you know, where we learn other subjects from, <laughs> but not Islam, apparently. Um, you know, and then being able to foster humility and openness to being wrong. And not linking that having wrong information to be shameful about that. Like just being open to saying, you know what? I actually don't know anything and I don't know what I don't know. So I'm going to be open to learning and accessing accurate information. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be a struggle. And I'm going to say, no, that's not my stereotype of a Muslim. But it's there, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a constant cycle of work of bringing awareness, relearning, and grounding yourself in just being able to be humble and open to alternative interpretations and understandings. And I say to Muslims who have left Islam the same, that is, you know, religious trauma. And I understand like Yasmin, I completely understand why she was like, goodbye Islam. Because as human beings, we have to make sense of the experiences that happen to us. And when your worldview is misused against you in that way, that's religious trauma. 
Um, so, you know, the process is the same for anyone who wants to heal from that um, and is looking for, you know, spiritual guidance is being able to just be aware of what thoughts you hold, where they come from. Are you willing to t open your heart even the smallest, tiniest bit to explore something else and taking it one step at a time? Mm -hmm. So why pray? Why read the Quran? I love everything you're saying. People listening are like, yeah, I'm with you. Like, you know, the, the progressives listening going, okay, yep. Like this, this is the direction I want to move. I'm totally on board. Progressive Christians might be listening going, yep, that's great. Like it really sits in well with what I'm thinking as well. So I suppose people have asked, and I've asked this of some uh, Christian, progressive Christian friends of the show. And I, I'd say, why bother... Why bother reading the Quran? I mean, everything you're saying, do you need to get it from an old book? Like, surely you can learn all this stuff without that old book. Surely you don't need to do this, like, ritualized, pray every day kind of thing. God is bigger than that. God is, you know, God is always there. He breathes life. It's within you. Yep, totally get it. Why bother with this old tradition and this, and this ritualization of it, if that is what you do? Yeah, so... I would say, and people probably don't know this, but um, an Islamic understanding of how God created humans is to be quite forgetful and in need of remembrance and structure and practices. So there's a verse in the Quran that talks about that humans were created to be forgetful. And if you look at the five pillars of Islam, we have one belief, belief in God, Prophet Muhammad is the messenger, and four practices that reaffirm that belief, fasting, praying, charity and going to the pilgrimage or hajj so by nature the five pillars of islam recognize that humans are forgetful of god as we talked about with the soul and what can kind of cloud the soul and so we need these practices to pull us back towards the truth with a capital t right so that's one answer to your question and the second is is that Spiritually speaking, there are blessings with reading the Quran. There's actually non-Muslims have heard the call to prayer and said they've been moved to tears because of the rhythmic beauty of hearing Arabic on a loudspeaker at a mosque. Like there's a certain feeling many Muslims will say they get when they hear the call to prayer out loud. Like, I, I mean, I sometimes want to cry. So it's all about using these practices to humble the heart and draw yourself back to God. So humans are forgetful. We're, we're being sucked into this world that we live in. Those practices have blessings in and of itself. And the goal is to constantly remember God by incorporating these practices, which is why we pray five times a day, which is why we give charity on a constant basis which is why when we look at nature, we should see, and other people, we should see all of God creations are sacred. So it's not just a Quran and praying. There's also other things in terms of how you are in the world, how you act towards other people, um, how you carry yourself. Those are all manifestations of your relationship with God. And so the practices support that. And there's also spiritual benefit in, in doing them and blessings in doing them. Mm -hmm. How do you view perhaps someone who, like Dr. Zudi Jassa, who 
frequently connects this conversation to the political. Maybe the sensationalist news outlet that continues to connect this conversation, which has, which are, we've gone through many different layers to like, it's a very spiritual conversation about the, the essence of humanity and what we're, what we're working towards and what we're, our purpose as humans kind of are. That's really the conversation we've had. How do you see those that might reduce it down to this political conversation? That is, if you're for Western democratic values, you've got to be against the religion that a lot of those within that religion are oppressing women and homosexuals and things like that. How do you view that person who might, whether they be a Fox News presenter or whether they be um, Dr. Zudi Jassa, who is a Muslim reformer, how do you view them? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would maybe, I'm understanding the question is what is my understanding of why they're doing that? Because I don't have any views. Yeah, I. When you so look at I, them and go, okay, what, how do yeah. you see them? I suppose when you see, if you if you turn on Fox News and saw that conversation playing out, and they're like, it's yeah. a threat to the West. We need reform. It needs to change. More Muslim leaders need to stand up against this violence and all of this stuff. How do you see that? I guess from where you sit. You know, at this point, I'm like, they are. They have a very misguided understanding. And a very convenient narrative to 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 be putting forward. I mean, I've just heard the narrative so much, and I actually um, don't have feelings anymore about it because I kind of I know where it comes from. I understand the lack of depth and nuance. I don't get angry. I mean, I'm just like I'm. I feel bad. I feel really bad for the person <laughs> that they have taken that perspective. And even Muslims who do that, there's been a tendency in the West where Muslims have become very reactive towards the political atmosphere, and that has dominated a lot of um, Muslim attention. So, you know, with all this, the even with the Islamophobia and just the climate of even the Muslim ban during the last administration, Muslims are responding to narratives that are put out there because we feel the need to defend ourselves. And I and that and we also need to now reform Islam to respond to these political needs, for example. And I'm just like, okay, I just feel like that is an incomplete picture. It's like you have a tiny piece of a one layer of an onion and you're 99 layers short. Like, you know, I just see it as somebody having a very superficial um understanding of what it means to be Muslim and what Islam is. And I don't blame them because they're coming from their point of view and their experiences and, and their knowledge and their expertise, just as I am. So I don't blame them. You know, we're all in this context and we all do the best we can with what we know. The question though is, are you open to exploring more than what you know? And it's something that I constantly check myself. I'm like, okay, Samira, like, is this your ego? Are you open to being wrong? Are you open to learning more? Um, and I think that's what we all need to do. Otherwise, we will just continue to present this very narrow, superficial understanding in a box. And Muslims are not homogenous. There's a, there's a spectrum where we're complex, we're nuanced, we're the most ethnically diverse religious group in the West. 
and only 20% of the world's Muslims are Arab. So why, when we Google search Muslim man and woman, do we see Arabs coming up? White, light-skinned Arabs, when the prophet was probably more towards being a black, darker Muslim. I mean, we, we just need openness and humility and the ability to have introspection. And I think those people who are taking very narrow political views also would benefit mm -hmm. from doing the same. Is that the idea? If you were a door-to-door -door salesman of ideas and you were <laughs> pitching an idea to sell to everybody you came across, is, is that the idea you'd probably back the most? Being humble about what we know, always reassessing what we know, always looking for the nuance in somebody else. Is that, is that, is that the central idea that I'm really hearing? Yes, and I would say that is, that is what Islam teaches at the deepest hmm. innermost level of our soul is that's what we're here to do. Yeah. You've you've definitely given a whole lot for us to sit with and digest, a whole new perspective um, and insight, uh, I think. So thank you so much for taking so much time. Is there anything you'd want to add to, to sum up? We did. We definitely didn't get around to sex, but I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> maybe another time I was like, damn, there's, there's a lot to get into. But is there anything you want to add to um, to that? No, I, I mean, I so appreciate the thoughtfulness of your insights and questions. And, I, and I'm sorry, I wasn't looking at Instagram in the comments. Um, no, I'll just share that I will actually post in my story tomorrow some resources. I always yes. post books and websites. Like you'll see my post has always like a list of books. I'm a bookie, but uh, a book nerd, not a bookie, but um, I'll think, I'll <laughs> if you got two dollars, put it on put it on a a team, a sports team. I can't think of it. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> but I'll post them in my story because I I think it's important that people realize that I did not like make this up. Like I want people to investigate themselves. So I'm all about accessing and critical thinking and and just having people um, think for themselves and be on their own journey and realize that that's, we're all on our own journey here and our journeys overlap sometimes just as ours did and people viewing, hopefully that people found that, oh, Samira also sounds like a human. She's not just a Muslim. <laughs> Here's the new thought, Muslim and human. And the fact that the fact that that's a, that's something you go to is probably a sad indictment on the way in which a lot of these conversations happen. A lot of the categories we place people into, Samira's really hit on that whole point of the show, is that when we place people into categories, that is the very act of dehumanizing. They become merely an idea to be debated on a seven-panel Fox News yelling match or CNN or whoever does it. And and I think. You've really, I feel like you've really brought that out. Where can people follow you and find what you're doing and the resources and things you're posting? Where, where do people keep in touch with you? Yeah, sure. So my Instagram handle is at sexual health for Muslims, which I know we didn't talk about, but we did a lot of the Muslim talking. Yes. Um, so I share a lot about Islamic um, tradition on that uh, on my Instagram as well. And I have a website with the same name, sexualhealthformuslims.com. So mm -hmm. you can uh, find me that way and, and reach out and I will definitely post some good resources tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, thank you so much once again for taking so much time. If you're still listening to this episode and we are an hour 43 and I'm always so thankful. <laughs> it always, 
I don't know. I, don't, I hope it didn't feel like it dragged for you. It always flies by and I get to like an hour 15. I'm like, all right, now we get to the, the really deep, interesting part. If, if you are this far in and you've disagreed with the entire thing um, and you've been triggered the entire time and you're still listening to us, that's, that's, that's the spirit. Good on you. Send me a DM and say, hey, Conrad, I made it through the whole episode. I actually am a firm believer in the opposite of what Samira was saying, but I made it to the end and I feel like I understand. I will send you the highly coveted golden metal emoji. You can use that however you wish. They're very rare. Send me a DM. If there's any questions you wish I had have asked, geez, there was a lot of them. I tried to connect some dots. Who knows what my mind connects and the questions I ask. Send them through. What did I miss? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And until then, and it, oh, if there's also anyone you think we should speak to on the show, send me a link and I'll reach out to them. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you all in the next episode.